I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Good to have you listening. Long before pandemic-weary Americans deserted big cities for the pleasures of rural life, Tamar Haspel and her husband Kevin got there first. They forsook Manhattan for a back-of-the-beyond 900-square-foot shack in Cape Cod. And just in case that wasn't a big enough adjustment, they quickly launched a grow-your-own-food project that became all-consuming in the best sense of the word. It wasn't going off the grid. Tamar and Kevin found that raising more and more of their own food brought them closer to their new community. Tamar writes, There is a primordial, a reptilian, a deep-seated satisfaction in taking food we harvested, cooking it in an oven we built, and feeding it to the people we love. Tamar Haspel writes the unearthed column for The Washington Post, and her new book is titled To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. And she joins us from Cape Cod. Tamar, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Carrie. I have a soft spot for Minnesota because my parents are both Minnesotans and they actually met at Central High School in St. Paul. So if I can do a shout out to the Twin (laughs) Cities... I hope some of their friends are listening, right? And some of your friends are listening. Uh, I want to begin with this idea that self-sufficiency when it comes to food or energy is often associated with independence and autonomy, right? Even kind of Mm -hmm. an anti-authoritarianism in some places. And you have discovered the opposite. So when did you begin to understand how necessary it was to, to be interdependent? if you were going to raise a lot of your own food? Well, my husband and I were always big advocates of interdependence. We never wanted to to raise our own food as a way to sort of keep everybody else at arm's length. And so often getting your own food is associated with a kind of ideology. Either it's, you know, opt out of the industrialized food system or or have a bulwark against Armageddon. And that wasn't us. We weren't in it for any kind of ideological reason. We were just in it because it seemed like a constructive use of our time. (laughs) That's how it started at any rate. And it surprised us in so many ways. And one of those ways was that it did connect us to our communities. One of the first things we did when we got here was join the Cape Cod Organic Gardeners, annual dues, $5.00. And we met people there who are our friends to this day who we probably wouldn't have met any other way. Our fishing club introduced us to other people and taking my hunter education class introduced me to yet another group of people. And, you know, this is how people did things up until about, you know, seven seconds ago, evolutionary time, (laughs) that we were all in it together trying to, to glean dinner from the landscape. And that network um, and that ability to connect with your neighbors is still out there. You know, I I love the idea of this, that you really, as noted, were not going off the grid. In fact, your grid was expanding because it had to, right? You really did have to rely on people in your community for wisdom, Right. For knowledge in a crisis and just for ideas you hadn't thought of. And, you know, for boat engine repair and, you know, (laughs) and for fishing tackle and 
for all kinds of things. And, you know, this was part and parcel of why this whole project that started off basically as, you know, I guess more than a lark, but not much more. It was this interesting thing we were trying to do to eat one food a day that we got with our own two hands. And it ended up um, really becoming interwoven into our lives in ways that that we have not given up and which we value. And yeah, there are so many people that we know only because we do this. And it has been it has been horizon widening in many ways, and that is one of them. I think since we have been kind of immersed in this idea that the pandemic changed up where we all thought we would have to work and where we would have to be, mm-hmm. I think it'd be instructive for our listeners to hear about how you all made the decision to leave a city that you were very familiar with and you loved and mm-hmm. to and to do this and I guess a few of the fears that accompanied the decision-making. What was it like? Oh, we were afraid that we would, you know, basically be leaving New York City behind us, and we loved it very much. And the backdrop for this, it was 2008, and the financial crisis was looming. Um, it hadn't started yet. We we bought this house in late 2007. But the, uh, the atmosphere um, was sort of pulling the rug out from – under both of our careers. I was a writer and the internet was disrupting all of the the work that I did. You couldn't work for Time Warner and Condé Nast for two or three dollars a word anymore because everything was going online and it was it was just a different landscape. And and my husband was a commodity trader. He worked on the floor of the New York Board of Trade. And uh, and the internet was changing that too. And people were taking trading uh, online and it's not necessarily a transferable skill. And so we're looking at both of our careers being disrupted. And we were like, what the hell? Let's go, let's go all the way and, and disrupt down the line. And we decided it was time for a change because everything around us was changing and we were going to go with the flow. And so we traded in our Upper West Side of Manhattan condo for this little shack on mm. two acres on a little lake on Cape Cod. So did you feel at the at the time you were making this decision that you, not just the careers were being disrupted, but that you were, I don't know, weary of the what it means to live in the kind of city in which you were living? I, I guess I'm interested in your your psychological needs and and how moving to Cape Cod might have met those it's so it's such a great question because i think it wasn't that we were tired of the city we loved the city um it was that we felt like okay here we were we were in our 40s and you know our lives were sort of being turned upside down without our consent and we just decided that what we needed going forward was was a change. So we weren't necessarily going away from something. We were going toward something. And we didn't think we could make big changes from where we were in Manhattan. Um, and we just wanted something new, not because we were tired of what was old, mm-hmm. but because we thought our our midlife selves 
needed some some new challenges. And so we picked up and left. I think it's it's remarkable to hear you describe that in 2007, 2008, a, a feeling and a mindset that I think a lot of people today can really relate to, right? Having come through this global pandemic and dealt with all of the upheaval. I think so. There are probably people who are in the same situation that we're in, that here's the pandemic, it's disrupting everything. They're going to go with the flow and go someplace else. There's some people who may be forced into it by job situations or, or something else. But the lesson I learned in all of this was that one of the best things you can do for yourself is to try something completely different. And um, it surprised me how powerful it was. And I suspect that there are a lot of COVID refugees yeah. out there that it may surprise also. Did, did you two see yourselves as risk takers in your daily life? And do you see this now looking back as, you know, as risky? Well, my husband is a risk taker. He's always been a risk taker. And I have not been a risk taker. In fact, I am such a goody two shoes. I never got in <laughs> any trouble. I always obey the rules. I'm like that person. <laughs> Whereas Kevin plays fast and loose with just about everything. And, you know, he was trading commodities for a living, which is just about the riskiest job that there is out there. You not only can lose money when you go to work, you can lose all your money when you go to work. <laughs> and, but, but this is, it's one of the reasons I'm so profoundly grateful to my husband because I don't think I would have done this without him. But he is a risk taker, and he does see um, the the what the upside can be. And I'm all right. I might not be a, a risk taker, but I'm reasonably curious, and I'm at least a little bit adventurous. And so I went along with it. Uh, and yeah, it was risky. I mean, we had the good fortune to, we had both been able to make money when the, when the making was good. And so we had a little bit of a financial cushion when we got here. Uh, so it's not like we had to worry where our next dime was coming from, but, uh, but we didn't know what our long-term trajectory was going to be for our careers. And in some ways, this was a way of getting comfortable with the risk. Mm. So you go somewhere else and you try something new. You know, the sensation that I have about your partnership that I appreciated was there's a your husband has this kind of can do. It, it sounds like demeanor. Uh -huh. Like it, it was it. There was no catastrophizing. I, I, I get that strong sense that there was no, if we can't solve this, we're going to have to go back. There was a very kind of calm sense of, we will figure this out and we'll pool our knowledge on this. And you know what? If we fail, we fail and we'll figure it out. Okay. So am I characterizing this correctly or fill in oh, the, the details? Very correctly. <laughs> Very correctly. And this was another thing about this that, okay, what are we doing? We're growing food. We're building a chicken coop. Uh, we're foraging for mushrooms. And, you know, what's the worst case scenario? Okay, except for those, there's a few mushrooms where the worst case scenario is that somebody will die <laughs> on the table. But other than that, nothing bad is going to happen if you screw up. And 
there's so many people who know so much about these things and and you can learn from them and we spent a lot of time on YouTube but basically the best way to learn these things which are let's face it all have to be adapted to your personal circumstances and your topography and your weather and 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 your schedule and your budget the best way to try and do it is to just jump in with both feet <laughs> and that was actually where so much of the surprise was in this endeavor that as we did project after project after project that we had absolutely no business <laughs> trying to do. Then each one, as we succeeded a lot, but we failed a fair amount too. Um, each one sort of built us up for the next one. And it meant that I spent like a decade on the steep part of the learning curve. And not only is that not scary, it's it's wonderful, it's constructive, it's joyful, it's confidence building. Um, and there's there's so much good about just jumping in and trying to do something you've never done before. You know, I, I listen to you to you can tell your confidence built with every problem <laughs> you solved. And I, I think you know, it's such a good skill to reignite in your 40s and your 50s when maybe there's a tendency to get comfortable. I know my landscape. I know my life. I don't have a lot of problems to solve day to day. You guys plunged in to an environment where there was constant demand for problem solving, which is great. You totally put your finger on it that you know, if we had stayed in New York, we would be solving the same problems over and over. And one of the things I learned, and neuroscientists are studying this too, that, you know, aging brains, and who among us doesn't have one of those, <laughs> aging brains thrive on new problems. And an inexpensive, constructive, stress-free way to introduce some new problems into your life is to try and procure your own food. Plus, you know, the actual food is like gravy after that <laughs> because the, the process of, of solving problems is kind of the meat of this. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show. I'm in conversation with Tamar Haspel. She writes the Unearthed column for The Washington Post, and her new book is titled To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. We've heard about her and her husband's decision in 2007-2008 to leave Manhattan and to move out to Cape Cod. And then they embarked on this Grow Your Own Food Project. They started with, we will grow and eat one thing a day that we have procured ourselves. And then it just expanded. And we're going to talk a little bit about that expansion. Also, as you know, if you follow me on Twitter at Carrie NPR, I have been asking you for experiences and stories about the food that you grow and a few questions. And so we'll get to some of those experiences and those questions a little later in the conversation. Uh, Tamar, you write, modernity has gotten between us and our deep-seated evolutionary endowed sense of what we're supposed to eat. Talk to me a bit about the context of that, and then I have a few questions after that. So until, call it 200 years ago, maybe until the Industrial Revolution, humans spent a lot of time in close contact with plants and animals that feed us. 
And everybody knew where food came from. Even people who weren't raising it for a living and weren't subsistence farmers were still very close to it because that was the only choice you had. There wasn't, you know, refrigeration. There, there wasn't, you know, long distance shipping and, and, and flying. You had to be close to the source of your food. And modernity has freed us from that concern. And in, just about every way, that's a wonderful thing because it frees us to be, you know, writers or radio hosts or accountants or dental hygienists. We can go and do other things. And the only reason we can do that is that somebody else is growing our food. I am not down on modernity. I think that, that it has been a wonderful thing for civilization. But it does have a downside in that we are disconnected from the plants and animals that are the foods that humans thrive, that humans thrive on. And, and I think our collective sense of what food is has sort of moved away from plants and animals and over to, you know, boxes and bags. And you go in the supermarket and it's, you know, the bright colors and the exciting punctuation. And (laughs) that's what dinner is. And I think that introducing some of these food procurement activities can sort of can move the needle back toward plants and animals. And, and for me, you know, the boxes in the bags don't really even look like food so much. And don't get me wrong, you cannot leave me alone with a bag of Doritos. That stuff (laughs) still tastes good. But, but, but it's not like, the food that I feed my family for our sustenance, it's its not like what's for dinner at our house. You know, I think it's interesting to think of the advent of contemporary food history and how preservatives and packaging were hailed, right, as this new era of convenience mm-hmm. and nutrition. Um, I think I mean, your book is not a denunciation of that, but it's also a, I think, these are some of the barriers between us and, and this sensibility of, of what we're eating. What, what do you, what is your, your take on the way we preserve and the way we package and what it means to, to our nutrition? I'm so glad you asked that, but unfortunately, I could go on for hours, but I'm going to try and keep it short. So, so the ability to preserve and package food and make it shelf stable was absolutely wonderful up until the very point that it wasn't. And so food preservation in ordered us to, to not waste, it made food more accessible to everybody and much more inexpensive. And those are all really good things. I mean, we live at a time when in the developed world, very few people go hungry. And it's still a problem some places. And I think it's very important to have to have a safety net for that. But shortage of food is generally not a problem, whereas starvation was a huge problem in the pre-modern era. And, but then, you know, those same techniques of, of, preservation were coupled with um, 
new I, new ways to make food essentially irresistible. And if you haven't read Michael Moss's book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, oh yeah, that's it's oh yeah. So Carrie, you've read that book, mm-hmm. and it's all about. And I hope it's salt, sugar, fat, and not sugar, salt, fat. I could get it wrong. And it's all about how food manufacturers get really, really good at figuring out flavors and uh, and combinations of sugar and salt and fat that there's a word bliss point that make food absolutely irresistible. And so, so much of the food that's out there now is essentially engineered to be overeaten. And I think that's where we run into problems, not in making sure that we have, you know, shelf stable bread or a safe canning technique for tomatoes and, and things like that. Boy, that is such a great way to put it. Engineered to be overeaten because, because the chemistry of this food is what igniting, uh, you know, you're firing on all body. cylinders yeah. of deliciousness. That's oh, exactly right. Wow. And and so when we have this conversation about processed food, I think sometimes it goes a little bit off the rails because it's not necessarily the degree of the processing. Some highly processed foods are perfectly fine for you. Take, for example, you know, supermarket whole wheat bread. Um, but it's the purpose of the processing, which has morphed from not just preserving this or making it safe to eat so that, you know, microorganisms don't grow in it. It's gone to to just being as tempting as possible. So when the purpose of processing went from preserving to tempting, that's when I think the balance tipped. You know, I'm sure you've read Michael Pollan's uh, work Absolutely. too, you know, and and his recommendation to eat mostly plants. I think that has become associated with, well, those people have time to do that, and they have the money to, and they can shop every day, and that's just not my life. I'll get to that someday. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I want to hear from you, Tamara, is how you blend what you're doing, what he recommends, with. A daily busy life and a family life. I'm lucky. Um, I have a very flexible job. I have a husband who also cooks and who likes to eat. I've been, you know, writing about food for decades. I'm a decent home cook. My kids are grown now, but when they were little, they never complained about what was on the dinner table. So I, I have almost the perfect storm of everything coming together so I can cook at home. And sometimes it even feels like a chore for me. So how does it feel for the single parent who's working on a budget, who just got home from work at six o'clock, whose kid, no, really doesn't want, you know, a chicken stew. They want to go to McDonald's. (laughs) It's really hard. And I am extremely sympathetic to that. Um, and I would like to have a food environment that sort of preserves some of the ways that parents can have those outs and people can have those outs because nobody's going to make dinner every night. Um, and, but, but gets the worst of the worst of temptation out from under us all the time because I don't necessarily think it's dinner time planning that's the problem. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, when, 
you go to Staples and there's Snickers bars mm. at the <laughs> at the at the checkout. There is constant temptation in front of us. And how many times can you say no before you give in? Let's come back to your own food environment and your own experience with this. I, I was hoping you would describe the the soil that surrounded <laughs> I love the detail you went into in your book about this. The soil that surrounds the house that you bought in Cape Cod. How how would you describe it? So I know it, it here we're going to light everybody's imaginations up with soil stories here. <laughs> But, you know, when we moved here, Cape Cod, there's a lot of sand on Cape Cod. And when I looked around at our quote unquote soil, it looked pretty sandy to me. So there's this tool that the U.S. Geological Service has online and uh, where you can look up your neighborhood. You can look up your own backyard and you can zoom in and it will tell you what kind of soil you have. So of course, as soon as I found this out, I jumped on it Mm. to see what kind of soil I had. And it does it by depth. And I looked and it says, from zero to six inches, we have carver coarse sand. From six to 12 inches, we have carver coarse sand. (laughs) From 12 to 36 inches, you guessed it, more carver coarse sand. And it was a little disheartening to find out that we live on sand. And that's compounded by the fact that we have all these trees, so we don't have a lot of sun. Plus, we have a lot of hills, so it's really hard to amend a garden. So we had a few factors operating against us when we tried to grow our first tomato. Um, but we, you know, we've learned a lot along the way. We, we, we've learned what we, what we can grow and what we can't grow. And so we have a pretty decent tomato crop every year, but there will be no root vegetables coming out of our garden. <laughs> so, you know, I thought in less determined farmers, all that sand could have ended the farming ambitions before it even began. But I, I guess I'm curious how much you're, you have to amend the soil, or is that just forget it? You, there's so much sand, you really can't do that. Amendments are us. So are they? Okay. The way we defeated this, or the way we we coexisted with it, is by building raised beds. And so we put in raised beds, and we put in soil and compost. One of the joys, by the way, of living, you know, out in the sticks is that our local dump, uh, Mm. you're supposed to call it the transfer station, Mm -hmm. but everyone still calls it the dump. (laughs) They collect everybody's, you can bring your leaves there in the fall, and they have a ginormous compost pile that they make available for free to town residents come spring. And so we made, we made excellent use of that. And yeah, so it, and we still grow almost everything in in raised beds. You're listening to a conversation with Tamar Haspel. She writes the Unearthed column for the Washington Post. And she's out with a new book that documents her and her husband's experience of leaving Manhattan and moving to Cape Cod and deciding that they were going to raise their own food. They began with, we'll eat one thing a day that we've raised or, or foraged. I think it was clams. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but as you can just hear, I mean, this has expanded into lots of food production and knowledge about how to do this. And so she's written about that in her new book, To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner 
in your own backyard. I don't want to forget the clams here um, <laughs> because that when you proposed, let's let's try this experiment of eating something, one thing a day that we've found or grown, you were like, thank God for the clams, right? Thank God for the clams because I had this idea basically, you know, New Year's Day and I broached it to Kevin. I said, do you think we can eat one food a day that we get firsthand? And Kevin is wildly supportive of my work. As you picked up and mentioned, he has a total can-do attitude and he goes, not a chance. And I'm like, who are you? What have you done with Kevin? And uh, and he said, well, what are we going to eat all winter? Um, and uh, I thought about that. And we had a few things put by, but not a lot. But I knew that there were clams out there. And clams are a year-round activity on Cape Cod. And we still call that our winter of shellfish because there were a lot of clams. But, you know, clams were a clam. It was the first food that I actually got from the wild. And there there were some ignominious attempts where no clams were had, but eventually I I found the clams. And I remember to this day, and this was, you know, 13, 14 years ago, I remember pulling that clam out from the sand with the clam rake <laughs> and how astonishing it was to me that you could go outside and come home with dinner. And, you know, we've been talking about this project now for what half an hour. And yeah, we're Kevin and I have gone over the top and we have all of these things, but it doesn't have to be that it can be so small. It can be going clamming on the weekend. It can be finding a mushroom in the fall. It can be a hydroponic herb garden on your windowsill, because what's important about this isn't so much the quantity but the sense that you get, you have raised beds. You understand that the tomatoes that you grow feel different, mm, don't they? Mm -hmm. And they taste different for sure. Of course they yeah. do. And the stuff that you're invested in um, has a very compelling, I know I keep using that word, power to it. And and you don't have to do what we do, which is go a little nuts. <laughs> you can do this one small thing like going clamming catch a fish, plant a tomato, and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay, since we're talking about taste, I want to talk about chickens and eggs. Uh -huh. um, it, you, you guys got into, I guess, a debate about how to house the chickens, when to let them run free. It sounds like that occupied a lot of time and imagination for a while. T tell, <laughs> me, tell me well, why. You know, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing because... You know, 200 years ago, any eight-year-old could tell you how to raise chickens and what a chicken coop could, should look like. I mean, in fact, this is how they signal, you know, the 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 time period in Victorian British, you know, uh, television dramas that's chickens running around because they were right. they were just a fixture. Yeah, right. They do that, don't they? And and here we were, and we thought that raising chickens was going to be this big hairy deal because we had no exposure to it. And so we, yes, it took us a while to figure out how to design the coop, how to build the coop, uh, what breeds of chickens to get, how to keep them fed and watered. Um, 
And yeah, it was, but it was one of those projects, you know, referring back to the, what we were talking about before about just constant skill acquisition. And Kevin and I don't always agree. In fact, if there are 10 ways to do a job and you ask each of us to list our top five, there will be no overlap. There's something about <laughs> oh, us. Wow. Ju- I know. it's <laughs> Our brains work in completely different ways. And so, so much of this project was about, okay, well, when does it make sense for one person to just do the job? And when does it make sense for us to put our heads together and figure out how to do it together? So, it, you know, there's, there, there's, there's a good dose of marriage counseling. I mean, this book. is even more impressive now that you've told me that. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the eggs. How many, how many chickens and how many eggs are you getting today uh, compared to how you started off? We started off uh, let's call it overboard. I think um, we. I think our first flock was probably a dozen, and and chickens when they're in their prime will lay almost an egg a day. Mm. So when you have a dozen chickens, you have almost a dozen mm-hmm. eggs a day, wow. and we don't eat anything mm. close to that many <laughs> eggs. And right now we have six chickens and they're a little past their prime. So we get four or five eggs a day. And even that is way more than we're ever going to eat. But here's the great thing about eggs from your chickens is that they are, they are great currency out in the world. Mm -hmm. People love the idea that they know where their eggs come from. And so they make excellent hostess gifts. (laughs) They're great currency in the underground barter economy. And all you need to know is somebody who's got a great asparagus patch, and then, you know, you can do the trade every (laughs) spring. So, and, you know, the other thing about chickens is that they're just super easy. They're, there's really not much to it. And I look back on my, you know, pre-chicken self. I'm like, wow, I didn't know a lot about this. But then from where I sit now, it just is clear that it's not that hard. And yet you can't taste the difference between the the eggs that your chickens produce and the supermarket eggs, right? This is going to be heresy to a lot of people who hear this. heresy. And I have never (laughs) pissed off as many people (laughs) as I did when I wrote about this. So (laughs) love it. So here we have these great chickens in the backyard and we have these beautiful eggs and they do look different. Our chickens were going outside and the the yolks were more stand up and they were uh, more orange than the pale yellow of the supermarket eggs. And I love and loved then. And I love now knowing that my eggs come from happy chickens. And, um, but at one point it just occurred to me, they don't, really taste different to me. They just taste like eggs. So there was nothing for it but to do a blind taste test. So we invited a bunch of our friends, many of whom are professional food people, and we literally blindfolded them (laughs) and spoon-fed them soft-boiled versions of our eggs, you know, fancy pants organic eggs, evil supermarket eggs, and a couple of other in-between steps. And nobody could tell the difference. The comments were all over the map. There was no one favorite. Eggs just taste like eggs. Now, if your chickens are eating something like garlic or citrus peel, yeah, you can get a, a, a taste in eggs. But most chickens don't. And 
eggs just taste like eggs. And this makes people furious. Why? And, why, Tamar, do you think that's so infuriating to people? Okay, here's why. And it's it's actually kind of important because it's so easy to to conflate all the important things about food. So yeah, the taste of food is really important, but so is the provenance of food. And that's you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because, you know, how you get your food matters. So is the 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 welfare of the animals who produce your food or who are your food. And once you get it in your head that there's a way to eat that's better for any of those reasons, it feels to you that there's that it's better for all of those reasons. And those eggs taste better to you because you know they are better. And I totally get that. And I don't want to take that away from people. I think that, I mean, I do the same. I love the omelet from my chicken's eggs. Um, but But I think that it's important to distinguish because those of us who would like to see improvements in our food supply, improvements in the way that animals are raised or the way that food comes to us. Um, I think it's important that we not sell a phony bill of goods to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these eggs are good for all kinds of reasons. But if we go out and say, oh, and by the way, they taste better, when they don't taste better, the people we're trying to convince to maybe pay a few cents more for eggs from chickens that had better lives are going to say, these don't taste better. They taste the same. This is all nonsense. And then give up and go back. So right. that's why I think it's important. All right. Some uh, some tweets and some insight and wisdom from the people in Minnesota and, and our surrounding states who are raising their own food. Here's Maureen. She says, I just had a baby. So this year I'm focusing on growing foods that are easy and good for him. Peas, melons, sweet potatoes, squash, broccoli, and carrots – now, if only I could get a banana tree to grow in Wisconsin. Tamar, is there anything in in that uh, cornucopia of things that she's growing that she might be missing, that might be fun to experiment if she's growing for her baby? Yeah, I would totally go with fruit trees mm. because not only do, of course, babies like fruit, um, but that fruit tree will continue to grow with that child and i uh, and continue to give and if you are if you want to to actually grow a significant portion of your food that's a great way to go because you plant a tree once and you know there's some care involved to make sure that that it thrives and that you protect the fruit from from you know varmints which is we have a lot of um but a fruit tree I think is one of the places to start. And people tend to start, you know, with cucumbers and squashes and, and those kinds of things. And those are great. Plant a fruit tree. Wow, what a great idea. Okay, here's Lee, who is growing a ton of fruit. Apples, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, cherries, saskatoons, honeyberries, grapes, red and black currants, aronia berries, I've never heard of that, pears and shiitake and wine cap mushrooms. This is a chance for you, Tamar, to talk a little bit about mushrooms and foraging, because that's ended up being an important part of your diet, I think. Mushrooms fascinate me. And so we get mushrooms in two ways. 
we grow shiitake mushrooms, which you can do pretty easily. You grow them in oak logs or in oak chips, and you you can buy inoculated uh, dowels um, to sort of plant the mushrooms in that medium. Um, and we've we've had those for many years, but. With no effort at all, you can get a mushroom guide or go on a local guided uh, walk to get the mushrooms out of the woods. And I know that this is intimidating to people because like the upside is a nice soup and the downside is an excruciating death and <laughs> the math just doesn't yeah. work. But it turns out that it's actually easy to avoid the mushrooms that are going to kill you and... Uh, and there are a few that uh, varieties of mushrooms that are really easy to identify that don't have deadly lookalikes and that actually are delicious. And so I think mushrooms, you know, don't really bubble to the top of most people's gardening or mm. even foraging projects, right. but I'm going to make the case for mushrooms. Okay, here's Mo who says after 10 years of trial and error, I've accepted the only things that will grow in my shade-dappled garden are kohlrabi and kale. I've leaned into it. I now have a bumper crop of each every year. Need to set up a barter system with someone who can grow tomatoes and peppers. Is she missing some things there, Tamar, that she could uh, be growing? Mo, Mo, I feel <laughs> your pain. <laughs> um, and in that same family, I might go with... Uh, with collard greens, which are a favorite of mine. But I would maybe try tomatoes in containers because they work really well in containers. And so while you have the kohlrabi in the garden, if you had the tomato in the pot on the patio, you might be able to to expand your repertoire around you know beyond <laughs> cruciferous vegetables and i i'm a big fan of cruciferous vegetables but sometimes we have to eat something else heidi says jalapenos i think this is what i'm most proud of they thrive in the southeast corner of the state where i live and it makes me so happy to see my kids get excited once they start budding do you grow a lot of different pe peppers? I don't remember that from the book. We grow some. Um, we've had a problem with blossom end rot on peppers before, mm. um, but we can grow the the little uh, uh, hot peppers. We, we've grown serranos. We've grown jalapenos. We've grown uh, scotch bonnets. But uh, there's a really good point in that tweet, and that is that one of the great things about growing food is to introduce kids to where food comes from. And there's actually even a little bit of research about this, that kids are much more willing to try something if they've had a hand in growing it, because kids are like, they're just small people and they get excited about it too. And so it's, if you've got kids, it's really a, a, a great way to get them in the loop. Devin says, we started growing greens in our basement under a grow light this last winter, and it was the best decision of my life. Fresh mizuna, spinach, and chard all North Dakota winter long. You have tough winters up there in Cape Cod. Do you start the seeds uh, during the winter? 
Well, there there is a batch of seeds that my husband starts in the basement under the grow light, and it's legal in Massachusetts. <laughs> so, Got it. So I'm afraid he he has co opted <laughs> the grow light for for those purposes. <laughs> All right. But we have we have grown um, not under a grow light, but we have extended the season for greens in the hoop house or in a cold frame. And yeah, you can grow greens for a lot of the year outside. And with a grow light, you can grow it inside. I'm I'm 100% in favor of that. And then Deb tweets, she tweeted me a picture of her uh, San Marzano tomatoes. Ooh. She says, uh, one of 50 plus of these plants. Last year, we made 20 oh gallons God. of San Marzano tomatoes and sauce to use and give away. We harvest seeds from one fruit each fall and plant those seeds Mid March, are you? What kinds of tomatoes are you planting? Well, first of all, I can you hook me up with Deb because I have some eggs that I'm willing to trade her for some of yes. those <laughs> <Marzano> tomatoes. <laughs> um, we uh, we grow a bunch of different kinds, and we have a great purveyor here uh, that we grow our uh, our we get our seedlings from. Shout out to Matt's Organics. And uh, we'll grow a combination of several different kinds of cherry tomatoes, the kind that you just stand in the garden and eat warm off the off the vine, um, and slicing tomatoes. And so we've had good luck with some of the uh, the heirloom kinds. We the black crims grow well here, and every year we fight hard to get some brandy wines to thrive. They're ah. a little temperamental and we have a little, we, we sometimes have trouble with them. But I, for my money, those are one of the best eating tomatoes in the world. What's the biggest agricultural disappointment you've had? Something that you just, you cannot get it to grow and yet you keep on trying. Well, I would say the biggest disappointment we had, we set up an entire hydroponic growing system. We had a gravity feed uh uh, fertilizer with a drip that went all the way down. And we had these, these stacks of pots Wow! and it just never really worked. And we <laughs> took it down after a couple of years. Well, it, it turned out that, you know, getting the feed right was difficult. Getting the nutrients in the feed to match the crops was difficult. And we grew some greens, but then we tried strawberries and they didn't really fruit. And it just, it didn't we had high hopes because you know if you have sand this is a great way to go but now the hydroponic experiment was not a smashing success <laughs> and it it took a lot it, it it was quite a learning experience and it took a lot of time i asked if you would read uh, a few passages here from your chapter on salt distilling. <laughs> I guess I am See, as enchanted. See, you're even laughing I know. saying it. <laughs> Be because so many people I know have been enchanted by the idea of this, and I just found this super interesting, too. What? Why do you think this is so enchanting to us? It's crazy. So we have a wood stove, and like many people who heat with wood or, or have auxiliary heat with wood, and I'm sure there are a lot of them in Minnesota because it gets kind of cold, and you have this cast iron pot on top. A lot of times it has a lattice top and, and you just fill it with water because wood heat is very dry and you want to try and humidify the, the, the space. So one bitter cold day, I'm watching this happen. And I say to Kevin, what would happen if we put seawater 
in that container instead of tap water? And, you know, obviously the answer is it would evaporate and you'd be left with salt. It's perfectly obvious. Yet this, to this day, our sea salt works remains one of our most fun and interesting to other people uh, adventures. And people always want to know about the sea salt, even (laughs) though we know exactly how it works. I know. There's no real mystery here. (laughs) Okay, if you'll read a bit from that chapter. Uh, The chapter is called Sea Salt Form. Form, salt, form. Let me take you back to our winter of shellfish. After we decided on New Year's Day that we would eat at least one thing we grew, hunted, or gathered every day, it was all clams all the time. We were getting very tired of clams and also of cold. That first winter made me understand where the expression hardy New England stock came from. In a population shift dating back to the pilgrims, all the wimps took to the hills after their first February. What was left were the people who were willing to put their underwear on in October and take it off in April. I was beginning to see the merit of that system. In the dead of winter, when the temperature outside is in single digits and the temperature inside tops out at brisk, it's hard to muster the courage to take a shower or engage in any other activity that involves removing your base layer. My admittedly anemic collection of lacy little La Perla confections was out of the rotation, displaced by more practical options. You know the thrill is gone when you choose underwear that keeps you warm and doesn't show the dirt. Luckily, the same landscape that keeps us clothed all winter works in reverse in the summer when we can skinny dip in perfect privacy, unless our neighbors have very powerful binoculars, like ours. On one ridiculously cold day, Kevin and I were sitting in our living room, layered up and grateful for our wood stove, trying to come up with a new, exciting way to cook clams. The stove can heat a space twice the size of our house, so when we put it through its paces, our living room can get very warm. Normally, we don't let that happen, both because we're trying to be hardy New England stock and because we don't want to waste fuel. But on this particular day, we were feeling dispirited and profligate, and we both really needed a shower. We put it through its paces. Like all people who heat with wood, we maintain humidity by keeping a cast iron pot with a lattice top filled with water on top of the stove. The stove was so hot, I could see little tendrils of steam rising out of it. Suddenly, and inexplicitly, I had an idea. What would happen, I asked Kevin, we put seawater in that pot. I know I gave it away by talking about it beforehand. He looked at the pot. Uh, It would evaporate? He asked it as a question, not because he was unsure whether it would, but because he was unsure why, why why I was asking. And after that happened, wouldn't we be left with sea salt? It was a rhetorical question, because of course we would. And so began one of the most surprising of our firsthand food enterprises, Surprising, even though we knew, going in, exactly what would happen. (laughs) Tamar Haspel's book is called To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. She was joining us today from Cape Cod. Tamar, what a pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. It's just wonderful. uh, Thank you for having me, and good luck with your raised beds this year. (laughs) Thank you. I'll need it.